This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. I'm Chris McCarty. And I'm Robbie Greenfield. And this is the Extra Time Podcast. Teddy Sheringham, former Manchester United, former Tottenham, former England striker, has been in conversation with your good self, Chris. He's here in Dubai. I'm sure he's playing an awful lot of golf. He is. He did spare you a few minutes. He did indeed, yeah. He is also a new ambassador for the MENA Cup. But of course, big night. Liverpool against Man United, the two most successful teams in English football history. And it's Teddy, for goodness sake, the man that scored the equaliser in the UEFA Champions League final back in 1999. He didn't win anything with Spurs. He moved up to Man United to replace Eric Cantona, in effect. He was 31 years of age when Fergie picked up the phone three and a half million quid and of course the rest is history I wanted to get his thoughts let's start with the United I wanted to get his thoughts on Bruno Fernandes on the continued development of Marcus Rashford and the enigma that is Anthony Martial but first his take on his old mucker Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who he admitted to me he never thought in a million years would actually move into management but how is Ole doing in Teddy's mind? Well, can you believe what a, a month, six weeks is the difference? I mean, they got knocked out of the Champions League and it was like, well, question marks about Oli. You know, has he got what it takes? He's got one more game. He's got two more games. That could be it. He could be out. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that a month later because his job was on the line. There's no doubt about it. I'm sure he knew that. But um, when you've got the quality like they have at Manchester United, who knows what can happen? And you know, you've got to give credit to Ollie as well for that. You know, it doesn't just happen. You know, you need to get around players. You need to make sure they're on board because we've all seen over the years what, what happens if the manager doesn't get players on board. They they get the manager to sack. So um, things are looking on the up for, for Manchester United it. and Ollie. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I would imagine you absolutely adore Bruno Fernandes. He, th- he seems to be the type of player that you would gravitate towards. And a bit of an unfair question, perhaps, but when you look at the stats, is he is he the best that United have brought into that football club since Fergie left? Um, well, thankfully for Manchester United, he made a, a sudden impact, didn't he? An amazing impact, which doesn't always happen for, for players, let alone foreign players coming into the Premier League. So for him to hit the ground running, and at a proper speed as well. He, is, he has been a revolution at Manchester United. Um, and with his assists and his goal record, you, you've got to say he's, he's, he's up there with the best that Manchester United have signed. Any frustration when you look at the, the Rashfords and Martials of this world? Uh, for, for you, their development, are they still trending upwardly? Do you, do you see any stagnation with them? Is that an area perhaps of concern? Um, I think when you look at both of them, you think let's let's take one at a time you you don't really see a particular position that they play so it's hard to to label them as you know they they could both be center forwards but they don't score enough goals to be center forwards they could both be left wingers but they don't supply the center forward with enough crosses or feed in play or you know it's they're 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 flitty players i would say they're not really number 10s either although both could play that that role um, it's a strange situation that you could play. I don't know if you know your uh, Terry Venables had the Christmas tree uh, formation, which would be a four-three-two-one. 
Um, so you could have a centre forward up front with Martial and Rashford just in behind that could go further wide. Not so much playing them as, as wide boys, but inside inside forwards like days before my time that you could play in there. But with a licence to go wherever you want. So, you know, you don't really want to label players that they are that particular type of player, but they can score goals, they can supply, they can create. So put them in and around areas where you can. Well, let's get Teddy's thoughts very quickly on another of his former sides. Spurs are currently in action as we speak. I can tell you they lead 3-1. 3-1 it is now. Sheffield United did pull one back through David McGoldrick, a lovely header. But Spurs have, uh, well, they've reasserted their dominance of this one. Tangai in Dumbelli has made it 3-1 to the visitors. But what about Teddy's take on Spurs? I had to ask the million-dollar question. The year does end in one or it will end in one this season have Spurs got what it takes to win the title? I think they've got a, got a fair chance I think the fact that they haven't won anything for a long time and been nowhere near the Premier League title for or the First Division title for, for years yeah. uh, for decades I think that will go against them because it's the teams that know how to win things with the, or I know they've got a manager that knows how to win things, but teams that know how to win, players that know how to win things, that I know you have to do your, your first bit and get it. I think that makes it very difficult. You have to look at Liverpool and Manchester City, um, that, that where the title's going to go for me, the, the top two teams that know how to win things. Um, but we're nearly halfway through the season and Tottenham are, are in a great position. It only takes a little run to, to be put together and... You know, you, you could be a few points clear and, and then going into the end of March thinking, <laughs> hold on a minute, look where we are. But, you know, there's a long way to go. Spurs, title challengers, what do you think, Rob? Uh, I mean, they're winning tonight, so they're three points uh, behind United after I this. I just think it's it's the kind of season where it's a real bun fight, isn't it? It's not the fact that Liverpool have had a stumbling block of late. Manchester United, it seems like a false position. Yes. No disrespect. No, it does seem like a, a bit of a false position none, none that they're taken. in. Uh, Leicester in second spot. You know, Tottenham are there or thereabouts. They're fourth. And um, although they haven't looked convincing, the one thing I would say is that teams that end up winning titles invariably eke out key games. I think we said that last time. Even when even when an unexpected champion comes along like Leicester, they did the, all those one nils, all the little key games that they won, tight games in the last minute where they just eked it. Yeah. And it's a pattern that you see time and time again with title winning sides. Name me a side that has won the title in the last 10, 15, 20 years who consistently threw away winning positions well, on that basis to then, give away draws. You, I can't think of one. You look at Liverpool, and again, I, I expect them to make a statement performance. He's had eight, nine days as Jürgen with his players. When we spoke to him on Wednesday, he had just come off a double session. I mean, he is relishing this. I expect Liverpool tonight in an hour's time to come up flying out of the traps. Man United need to be absolutely bang at it to live with Liverpool in the opening 15 minutes. But you look at those sides down near the bottom. Liverpool, 1-1 with West Brom at Anfield. Fulham at Craven Cottage, 1-1. Brighton, great win for them at the weekend over Leeds, but they drew 1-1 there as well. That is 
dare I say it, that is unlike champions. Yeah, so, so I think in a season where clearly normal rules do not apply because of the backlog of fixtures, because of obviously the COVID, the way that, that, is, that that's affected things and the fact that a lot of these games are being moved around, some of the squads, some of the, you know, Mo Salah was infected, some of the high profile players have all had time on the sidelines due to the fact that they've been infected by coronavirus. Yeah. The, the fact is that in this weird season, a team like Tottenham can nick it. I'm going to say that. They wouldn't in a normal season, well, but I think they can this time around. It's extraordinary. You look at it, Man United top, 17 games played, 36. Leicester have played a game more, 35. Liverpool at 33. Tottenham now at 33. Man City with a game in hand over Liverpool and United, 33. Eh, sorry, 32. Everton, 32. Chelsea, 29. It is so contained there. We are in for, and I know it's only game, what, match day 18. We could be in for the closest title race with multiple teams, not just two. I know Man United, Man, eh, Man City, Liverpool a couple of seasons back were nip and tuck. But we could be talking about, and I'm thinking of this, imagine last day of the season, three or four teams could win it. That's oh, the ultimate, be right? Amazing. Be unbelievable. It would be incredible. Yeah. Well, well, let's get to who he thinks will win the title. Listen, I had about 20 minutes in his company and I just wanted to ask, you know, Ted, when you look at how close and bunched the, the kind of title challengers are who ultimately does Teddy Sheringham think will win the Premier League title this season and if you're a United fan you might want to turn your volume down now I've said from the start I think I think Liverpool I love the way Manchester Manchester City play the game the way they take the game to everyone that they play against I would love to be in that football team Liverpool are a little bit different you know very strong at the back or they have been uh, over the last few years They've had a couple of injuries, which has caused them a few problems this year. Uh, but they're very strong at the back, strong in midfield in their front three. You just let them run wild and, you know, very understanding of their whole setup. Klopp's got them all regimented in what they do. And that's normally the team that win the Premier League. It's not always, as Pep's shown over the years, but it's normally the way. So I would have to go for Liverpool. I think the difference there, I think, is when City have won the Premier League, they've also been very solid. They've been, you know, they've they've blown they've blown teams away. I would never think, I would never ever say it's weird, and perhaps uh, I'd need to go back over the stats. Yeah, you never think that City are solid. They've always just blown teams. No, but away they, there's been a solidity about power. them because I think the year, the two years that they were so impressive in winning the title. No one could get the ball off them. No, that, that, that's it. Uh, and so, so powerful were, in that regard. Attack it was their best form of defence. Yeah, that's it. It wasn't as if it's... It, you would never describe it as a defensive masterclass the likes of Jose Mourinho, what he produced. It was because, as you say, Rob, you were chasing shadows for 90 minutes. They were so dominant. Teddy also gave his thoughts on a, a midfielder. Yeah, well, Jack Grealish is someone who has been getting... Uh, rightly so, maybe a tad overblown. In all honesty, for me, the the, the loving for Jack Wil- uh, Jack Grealish, sorry, not Jack Wilshire, Jack Grealish, who like Jack Wilshire has been anointed as the new Gaza. That's the that's the old kind of adage that has been thrown his way this year. It was Jack Wilshire before him, a number of players before that. Jack Grealish, though, I wanted to get Teddy's thoughts because Man City are being linked, Man United are being linked as well. Teddy, is he a fan of the Aston Villa skipper? Yeah, I think he's got to be just just from his temperament coming on playing for England at the moment. Is you know very much in a similar mould like Gaza. Get the ball to me, get the ball to me, and I'll I'll make it happen. When Gaza came on the scene, he didn't care who he was playing with or against the top teams, the top countries. It was like get the ball to me, 
and I will make it happen. And it was like, I wasn't actually about at the time, but I've listened to people like Brian Robson talking and it was like, who is this kid? Who is this kid? And he was just like, get the ball to me and shrug people off. Jack is very similar to that. Not, not ideal in that, you know, you couldn't have a carbon copy like Gaza. I liken him a little bit to Ginola, the, the way he drifts out to the left wing and, and tries to take people, draws people to him. He'll have one player coming, two player coming at three player, and then he'll just slip that lovely little three-yard ball to release his midfield player that then gets the assist for the, for the goal. So his assist might not be high up on the list, but his assist assist, yeah. which, which makes the goal for somebody else to make, then, then you know, you've, you've got to realise he's doing that as well. I think he's a fantastic player. He's got lots of confidence about himself at the moment. Wants to, looks like he loves to play football. Uh, it looks like he's enjoying himself and that's when you're at your best. He's also a firm favourite in fantasy football, given his price of, I think, something like 7.6 7. 7. 6 million. Decent bang for your buck there mm-hmm. with Jack Grealish yeah. in the middle of the park. Unfortunately, in there is no points for the assist of the assist <laughs> no. of the if goal. Only, if only that bagged an extra point. <laughs> this is Extra Time. Without further ado, the floor is yours, Chris McCarty. Yeah. It's an address to a... To a nation. It is an address. It's an apology. It's a mere culpa. It's an address to about 1.2 billion <laughs> Indians out there. And I know a number of them listen in because I can see that on the text lines already. This is my apology to you. Because let me tell you, Kylie Minogue, Hugh Jackman, Crocodile Dundee, Kathy Freeman <laughs> and Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> you to boys took one hell of a beating today. I am, of course, talking all things cricket. India today pulling off one of the great, not only run chases, but one of the great Test Series victories ever. It was one of the great Test matches to cap off one of the great Test Series. Uh, Amazing. It had everything, right? You don't want to see controversy. We've seen it off the field. We've seen a bit of it on. We've seen some fantastic cricket. India depleted without their skipper, without a number of what you would call first kind of names on the team sheet. And they've gone down under. They've beaten Australia at the Gabba in Brisbane for the first time since 1988. I said on the show last night, I fancied the baggy green to come out today and swat India aside. It wasn't to be. I doff my cap. An incredible story and we'll delve into into it in a lot more detail after 7 o'clock. We're going to be live to India for reaction to genuinely one of the sporting stories of the last 12 months, I think. Incredible, absolutely incredible. And uh, Twitter has been mercilessly mocking Tim Payne for his, well, his little jibe towards Ravi Ashwin, can't wait to get you to the Gabba. Um, Tim. Can't wait to get you to India. It will be your last series, says uh, Ravi. said Ravi Ashwin in reply. And uh, someone has said on Twitter, Ravi was actually wrong. <laughs> this match was his last well test be. match. It may well be. Uh, Tim Payne, the, the, the fallout from this result will be felt, I'm sure, keenly over the course of the next coming days. I know in the aftermath of this, he has said he needs to go away and have a think. So there could be changes at the top of Australian cricket, certainly from a captaincy perspective. That may well leave the door ajar for Steve Smith to step back into that particular breach if indeed Tim Payne does make the decision to step aside but uh, yes to all our Indian listeners my sincere apologies and I am done predicting what will happen on the fifth day of a test match let's just let's just end sport predictions they don't work they don't there's no future in them no it really is only bad things can come of them yes unless you pick John Rahm to win the DP World yes. Tour Championship
India are basking in the glory of an astonishing victory in the series. A, a series which began with a humiliating yes. lowest ever total, yeah. 36 in a yeah. test match. They were bowled out. They were humiliated. They were without Virat Kohli. They were without several other of their well-established stars. They were relying on youngsters. The likes of Shubman Gill and Rishabh Pant, both of whom are under 24 years of age, Chris. Shubman Gill, I think, is only 21. And yet they have emerged as the stars of a series which has been just an amazing showcase for it test cricket. It's, it's had everything. It's had the, the back and forth. It's had the sort of the sledging it's element. The needle, yeah. The needle that, that, you know, I think is a part and parcel. It's an important part of the game. And, and obviously it's come back to bite Australia and specifically has. Tim Payne in a, in a huge way. Yeah, perhaps the arrogance of Tim Payne. Well, certainly not perhaps. The arrogance of Tim Payne. You heard it. It's well documented. That is why he is being trolled on social media. Can't wait to get you to the Gabba, Ravi, was the words. And unfortunately, Ravi Ashwin couldn't play this fourth and final test. And you saw he tweeted about it, though. I did love that. Yeah, he, just, he, he, he added Tim Payne. <laughs> yeah, he dropped him in. He said it's a shame he wasn't there, but <laughs> well done at the Gabba. And then at Tim Payne 23 or whatever his handle is. But it is a remarkable victory for so many reasons. And, and you're absolutely right, Rob. The fact that India were skittled out for just 36, that's when they had their talismanic leader in the shape of Virat Kohli. He then had to leave Australia, always pre-planned. He headed back for the birth of his first child. And the youngsters have just stepped up. Dare I say they've been Ah, better without him? Oh, come on. Come on. No, no, no. Well, I mean... Well, they've won it. Would they have won it with him? Ah, come on. No, I'm not going to sit here and say... Is is that you You saying that Virat Kohli's going to fight to get back in the team? No, 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 no. It's just saying that every now and again, when your team revolves around one individual... And he is on a pedestal and everyone else is kind of underlings. Mm, I, you know, I, I know where you're going I just, with it. I just feel like there may, be, there may be weight to the suggestion that this team was able to flourish and kind of step out of the shadow cast by Virat Kohli. Not, nothing to do with him and obviously the circumstances. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he doesn't make them a better team. I'm just saying it's interesting that the doggedness, the resilience, the sort of guts that they showed Youthful were all on display out with the presence of Virat Kohli. Yeah. Just putting it out there. Yeah, and listen, there's the youthful exuberance, right? They, they were, uh, and, and that's what it brings. We, we've spoken to so many people in the cricket world, football world, that the, the, the onset of youth, you, you don't have the same fear. And I think for a lot of these cricketers, and, and you've named a couple there, Washington Sundar I'd throw into the mix as well, Natarajan I'd throw in, you've got Mohamed Siraj, you've got so many players inexperienced at this, at this level, but all the pressure was transported back on Australia. And certainly after that third test, and again, I'm not privy to what went on in the dressing room in India, but you would imagine the messages, you know, Tim Payne says he, he's looking forward to having us back at the Gabba. We'll go there and we'll show him. And we've had loads of messages in. And I've got to say, I think there's a lot of merit to what Sanjay has messaged in. Let's read this one out. He says, India's test win and miraculous bench strength highlights the importance in Sanjay's belief of the IPL. Perceived by many to be the downfall of cricket, it has neutralised the playing field and instilled belief into youngsters that on their day, they can stand tall in front of the Smiths and Warners of this world. So much more than that, just a money-making, so much more, he says, than a money-making T20 league today proved it. And I think there is a semblance of truth to that, whereby final day of a test match, you've got to hunt down 328. T20 has brought real abandonment into the game. And while sometimes we have said, you know, where's the concentration, the focus? It's been to the detriment of the the, the qualities that have always underpinned test cricket. By the other 
Flip side of that, though, the real abandonment with which T20 has gone, that no, no total is insurmountable. Play with freedom. Play your natural game. And I think a lot of youngsters now will, in effect, play attacking cricket. They'll look to go after the bowlers. And let's, well, by, let's but by contrast, this is interesting. Because Chetishwar Pujara, obviously a much more established player yeah. than Shubman Gill, he made his 56 off 211 yeah, balls. That is a test cricket innings that right is. there. That is, a bo- that is a run scored r- roughly every four balls. Shubman Gill, by contrast... 91 runs from 146 balls. And you look that's, at that's your pant as my well. My maths is, again, not, not my strong point, but that's, that's over 0.75 runs a ball. And then you look at Pant, 89 off 138 balls. So you, you see there, Pujara's in there to anchor it. He's there to make no silly mistakes. Uh, and he did that today. You know, eventually it was LBW. I think Pat Cummins eventually took the wicket of Pujara. But that is the perfect mix of a little bit of steely determination, a little bit of experience in there, married with that kind of feeling of go out there, play your natural game and... You know, you've got nothing to lose. Nothing's expected of you. I know I appreciate India is, when it comes to their cricket, they are an expectant nation, but I don't think even the most hardened of India fan today, you know, had they lost, which I expected them to do, you know, I think they would have still come away with an awful lot of credit. And Prashant's saying, guys, stop dwelling on the 36. Let's talk about Australia's humiliation. I just think, Prashant, the 36 is, is pertinent because, yeah. in many ways, you heap more credit on India for the way they came back and the way they ended up winning this series because of that, that first oh, match. Yeah. The fact that they, ha- they were 1-0 down away to a team that almost never loses a- on their home patch. Australia almost never lose at home and yet they've managed to win it from being 1-0 down, having been beaten by such a drastic yeah, 36 margin. and having said, Tara to their captain, having obviously been without a number, Jadeja's, Ashwin, okay, later on in this fourth test. So they've been missing some big players. And I think you're absolutely right to point that out to Prashant, that it makes it even more impressive. That's what we're seeing in all of this. And then you expected with the record that Australia have at the Gabba, you know, haven't lost there since 1988, Rob. It's 32 years. It's almost as long as I've yeah. been on this mortal I mean, coil. Talk about the Gabba as one of those ones in the ashes in particular where you just wince because you know that England yeah. aren't winning at the Gabba. And the fact that uh, the India have gone and, and done that and done it in the style that they did, chasing down 328, the record run chase at the Gabba. Sensational stuff. We are crossing over to India to get reaction. Fard's been in touch watching the Australia v India series as a neutral. It was a true delight. Great grit in the last three tests from both teams. Big congrats to Team India and all the fans for an amazing final day of the series. Watched the last three hours of that battle. was on the edge of my seat. Easily now in one of the top five test matches of all time. Great win for India. Even better for test cricket. Let's cross now to some reaction from India. And we're going to speak to cricket writer and broadcaster Chetan Narula. I believe this is his first time on Off Script Extra Time. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Chetan into the conversation. Chetan, thank you so much for joining us and a very good evening to you. Good evening, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure yeah. to be here. No, don't be silly, Chetan. Thank you so much for spending the time to have this chat with us tonight. So, well, let's start with the reaction in India. I'm sure the party will be going long into the night. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not really an exact party because obviously because of the lockdowns and everything, social distancing, etc. That's the world we live in. But... Uh, Listen, everybody's congratulating everybody. People are calling up uh, people who haven't spoken in a while because cricket unites all of us. 
Uh, I have spoken to a lot of my colleagues uh, I haven't spoken to in a while because we have felt we all have busy lives, don't we? So, yeah, I mean, messages and high fives and virtual messages, virtual hugs, <laughs> virtual high fives. It's, 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 a, it's a big united country today. It's a very happy country today. Cricket makes us happy. And uh, the manner of this victory has made us ecstatic. I mean... Um, let, let, let me just go out on a limb and say that uh, it's payback for all our suffering in 2020. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. <laughs> well, listen, Chetan, how, what were expectations like among the kind of cricketing connoisseurs over in India before this series started? Yeah. What, were, were you really expecting India to win this series? Was anyone, even the, the glass-half-full optimists, were they expecting India to actually go down there and do this? Uh, no, no. Short answer, no. And, and you know what? It's it's been a very complicated series in that sense because, um, you know, the way the world has changed. First, the IPL was played in the UAE. It was a very uh, secure bio bubble, and then the players just, you know, they just transferred to Australia. No Indian media. I'm part of the travelling contingent most of the time. Um, no Indian media or no Indian travelling journalists were present in Australia. None at all. That's the first time ever it's happened in Indian cricket history. Um, you have to go back all the way, even in 47, when the first time India went to 47 or uh, not even 47, 51, when the first time India went to Pakistan, they still had Indian journalists then. So first time in Indian history, no journalists, a very different scenario. Um, Virat Kohli pulling out because of paternity leave, um, then all the injuries and the bio-bubble conversations and the, <laughs> uh, the alleged racial abuse or uh, fledging, everything put together. Um, and of course, how can I forget, fielding a second string side or a third string side, um, no, nobody gave them a chance. Uh, this has to be a miraculous win, an upset win, uh, but also a fantastic win and probably the greatest test win for India in its cricket history. Really, Chetan, I mean, that is... I mean, we're accused sometimes of hyperbole and, and se sensationalism on this show. Not often, but sometimes. Are you putting that right up there as India's greatest ever series win? Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Just consider the situation. Uh, it's easy to get carried away. But again, uh, you look at uh, 2001 when India did beat Australia at home. That was a come, come from behind victory. Again, once again, lost the first test. That amazing turnaround in Calcutta. Um, then, of course, uh, you have the Chennai Test match. That, that was a very good Indian team. That was, the that, that was a first-string Indian team. That was a full-strength Indian team. You had Tendulkar and Ravel and Ganguly. Maybe you didn't have Anil Kumble. That was, that was the only name missing from that playing eleven. But then you had Harbhajan Singh, uh, who took 30 wickets in three Test matches. So you had a bowler of that caliber. This Indian team, or this Indian team in, in terms of the last two Test matches in particular they were missing quite a few names from the first side. And, and you just need to pick up uh, the, the team that has been selected this evening to face England in the first two test matches. It's a completely different side. Half the names are not there. So uh, in that scenario, for, for the playing 11 to come together and just gel in that situation in, in a span of two test matches, not to mention that the fighting spirit that they showed over the four tests, that was already there. Yeah, this has to stand out as one of, uh, if not the, one of the greatest Indian test wins ever. And when you see some teams, Chetan, and I'm thinking 
an example in football I can think of when a team loses its talisman. When Brazil lost Neymar in the, the World Cup in 2014, they capitulated in the next match to Germany. The opposite effect happened to India. They lost Virat Kohli and yet that seemed to somehow unite them. Now, I made the somewhat cheeky suggestion that Virat Kohli's absence in a weird sort of way helped India. Um, and I don't want to say that he doesn't add to their team. Of course, he, he's their captain and he is, on paper at least, their best player. But what's your interpretation of that? And then if you can think on the other side of things, and Australia, where do they go now with the future of Tim Payne? Right. Um, answering the Virat Kohli question, it's almost blasphemous to <laughs> suggest <laughs> uh, that he doesn't contribute to, contribute to the team. Um, uh, look, I have to be neutral here and I have to put forward a balanced perspective. Uh, it did galvanize the team because not so much within the dressing room, but perhaps the external factors. The moment they were, let's not forget, the first test match, India were bowled out for 36 runs. Yeah. Gully cricket teams don't get bowled out for 36. You know, gully cricket teams playing four-day matches or five-day matches they, or, or even a day match, they don't get bowled out for 36 runs. So 36 all out and then no Virat Kohli and a couple of injuries there. Nobody, no cricket expert, no former Australian cricketer, current Australian commentator, even Michael Vaughan from the UK, he went all ballistic on Twitter saying 4-0 Australia, 4-0 Australia. Nobody gave them a chance and... Perhaps in the sanctity of their dressing room, they came together. Ajinkya Rahane, he might not be a loud character, but he's a very strong character. I know him personally. He's very determined, very aggressive in terms of his mental approach. And it reflects in his cricket. Uh, perhaps what Virat Kohli's absence did was allow the different characters uh, in the Indian team to come to the fore. Rahane, Ashwin, Bumrah, they are all leaders in their own manner. Uh, Virat Kohli is, uh, is, is, a, is a volatile character. Sometimes uh, he overshadows everybody else and he's that sort of a character. Uh, but sometimes you tend to overshadow because he's such a strong presence, such a central figure. Uh, but yeah, I think his absence perhaps galvanized them considering the external factors even more. And um, uh, the captaincy debate is very interesting. Uh, I still think uh, Virat has a job to do as captain, as Indian captain across format. But at some point, we do need to sit down and ha have an honest discussion. And when I say we, Indian cricket, the stakeholders in Indian cricket, I'm not sure they're ready just yet to have that honest discussion about Virat's captaincy, whether he should be captain or not, uh, perhaps next year. Regarding your second question about Tim Payne, um, first captain in Australia to lose consecutive home test series to India doesn't bode well, does it? I think... Uh, uh, Tim Payne has outlived his utility. Uh, no disrespect, he's not an object, but in terms of in cricketing terms, he was brought in to do a job. He was a stand-in captain at best. Um, he doesn't add to their batting lineup. He's a, he's a wicket keeper who can bat a bit. Um, he's he's not very good at DRS reviews, is he? And his sledding <laughs> no, has not been has not been an, and, and his has also not been on. It's not aged well, Chetan. <laughs> Oh, listen, that is an incredibly yeah. good summary of what we've just witnessed. If that yeah. was, if we transcribed that, that could be a thesis on what we've just witnessed, <laughs> Chetan. That, that was fantastic. That was really great. So, so thank you so much for sparing the time to come on and, and give yeah. your expert insight into what we witnessed. What a fantastic summary. This is Extra Time. 
I think it's only right that we start with, it's actually a story away from the golf course in a lot of ways. Yes, it happened on the course, but the fallout from it, it centres around Justin Thomas. This was some disparaging remarks, or one remark to be exact, well documented, it won't take you long to research this on Google, that he made over in Hawaii last week. Now, we weren't privy to the press conference today. We've been busy. I've been out and about. You've been busy. But we did have a man on the inside to be there. And it's fair to say that Justin Thomas was grilled quite handsomely by the assembled media. If you can scroll all the way down, Rob, yep. to this, because, well, it was put to Justin with regards to that remark that there are some that will say it's not isolated at all. He's just been caught on microphone, that perhaps this is the way that Justin thinks. And is that fair? And this is what he had to say. That's unfortunately just what comes with it in terms of people not knowing who I am and 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 the actions or, or the consequences of what I said. You know, I, I'm not, I'm clearly beyond proud of what I said. I mean, it's, it's, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's not me. Um, it's, it's not a word that I use, but for some reason it was in there and that's what I'm trying to figure out as to why it was, uh, in there. And, um, and just like I said, it's going to be a part of this process and training program or, or whatever I need to do. Um, not only to prove to myself, but prove to my sponsors and prove to those people who don't know who I am that that is indeed uh, not not the person I am. This is getting dragged up a bit too much for my liking. He's already had a sponsor desert him. He's apologised. What more can the man do? Well, he's fairness, already made a statement on this. It's, it's a cuss word. Uh, it's a, it's a, more than a cuss it, word. It's a terrible choice of word, but I, I believe him. I fundamentally believe him. And well, I, there I, is I, that, but equally, you know, he could, he could have dropped other words. And, and, just, could have been, and it would have been that, water but, under the bridge. But there is, you know, for me, I think absolutely he's got a case to answer for. Of course he the has. Word that he said. Uh, and, to to and me, if, he answered for it. Well, he's released a statement. In fairness, we wouldn't have been doing our jobs hadn't we not asked about him. This was the first chance that the media got to speak to Justin Thomas. And I thought, and I've listened into the full uh, interview and, and today, I thought you and Murray, I thought uh, Phil Casey, I thought they did very well. T to bring it up, it needed to be addressed. There were fair questions. They were structured fairly. And I just want to play this next one because as you say uh, Ralph Lauren they are the big sponsor to walk away from Justin Thomas in the wake of what he said and this was his response to, to them doing just that I think disappointed is the wrong word I mean obviously I was upset uh, but at the end of the day they they had that right they they had to make the decision that they had to make and uh, you know I spoke with them along with all my sponsors and although I apologize you know it's just like it was then, it's an opportunity for me to grow, and uh, I felt like it was something that we, you know, we could have done together and gone through that process. And, you know, they just felt like they needed to move on. So uh, that's that's exactly what I'm doing as well. So uh, it, it was a great run that we had and a great partnership. But um, you know, things will work out for the best. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's. I think you do things, you suffer the consequences, you apologise, and then I do feel like sometimes just too much. Too no, much is, listen, made, is made of this. Maybe to a point. But he was irritated with himself. He said a word. He shouldn't have said it. Absolutely shouldn't have said it. To me, it was not. It was not the slur that some people have. Well, it was have, the slur because no, the word was said. It, it was said in a way to himself under his breath as a muttered. Uh, certainly, you know, it's it's an odd choice of word. Massively. 
which is why he's got to be asked about it. Now, you're saying there that he's released a statement. You know, being in the media game as much as I do, you've got your PR I just, people. I just hate these whiter than white, you know. It's, it's, I, but, well, you can't sit there and defend the word that he used. I'm Rob. not defending it. I'm not defending it. So I'm, therefore, I'm, I'm just saying ev- everyone jumps on their moral high horse. And it's just, to well, me, it's like all these journalists, yeah, I mean, you, you put a camera in under them, put a microphone under them when they're in the yeah, bar. It's their job, Rob. You know what I mean? Well, so what? Would you, had, you, had you been there today, you wouldn't have asked that of them. You wouldn't have been a proper journalist if you hadn't done that and I mean that Rob you've got to ask yeah of course he's released a statement you asked the that question. probably had PR teams left right and centre over it he needs to answer for his actions he's did it today I implore you do listen to the full interview as I say Phil and Ewan Murray fair in their line of questioning it wasn't a hatchet job it was very much we need to ask you to hear from you. It's the first opportunity to do that, Justin. There was four questions in total. We move on. He was very eloquent. You heard it there for what it's worth as well. I'm with you. You know, and, and Rory Mackerel will hear from him after the break. Rory led to his defence as well to say, listen, I've known Justin. I know him well. It's not, uh, I, I don't believe it is him. He will learn from this experience. But equally, he's got to be asked. He absolutely has to be asked because, you know, that's what the guys are paid to do. That's what we are paid to do. He said that word. There is no excuse for it. I take your point about whiter and white. He is someone in the public eye. He has said a word that in today's society, whether it's under your breath or not, Rob, it's, it's not acceptable. You cannot be missing a putt and uttering the word that he did. You just can't. The, the remark that Justin Thomas made that he answered for today in his press conference, well, it was also a question that was put to Rory McIlroy yeah. inevitably. Yeah, just his reaction on it. And this is what Rory had to say. Yeah, I mean, I think he's already responded really, really well. Um, I think he, he realised he, he made a big mistake as soon as um, it was brought to him last week in Hawaii. Uh, and he, you know, he completely owned up to it. You know, he said he messed up. He he's going to try to be better. Um, and and uh, you know, Justin is is true to true to his word. He will be. Um, I yeah, I've gotten to know Justin really well, um, and he is as good a guy as they come. You know, he's got a lot of integrity, a lot of character. Obviously, it doesn't make what he said any better. But you know, I think in this day and age. It's hard because it seems like you can't, you know, you're not allowed to make a mistake anymore. Uh, any mistake gets jumped on. And, like, he made a mistake. He owned up to it. Um, and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll be better because of it. He'll uh, maybe not be as maybe ignorant to, to uh, things that, are, you know, offend people, I guess. Um, it's obviously what he said was, was offensive to a... A large portion of the of the of the population, and um, but again, he'll be better for it. He'll he'll learn. He'll move on, and you know, look, he'll be as just a, as good a golfer as he's always been. And if anything, it'll probably just make him a, a better person than he already is, which is hard because he's he's already a great guy, a real diplomat. Yeah, he was. Right? Right? That kind of sums it up. I mean, to come back to your point, and a lot of people not leaping to the defence of, of Justin saying that he's not a bad guy and, and absolutely right Rory's right in there we've all made mistakes and we all do make mistakes I think what I was railing against was the notion that journalists wouldn't ask that question I think now you put it to bed now that a statement's gone out now that the, the amassed media have had their chance to ask the question now you know and we know it we've been in those situations whereby you're there with the individual
individual, stripped back. He's given the answer repeatedly. He's explained his actions and he wants to be a better person for it. And we do move on. And I think a line in the sand will be drawn from this. And listen, he is a wonderful golfer as Justin, number three in the world. And given the fact you said it, Chris DeMarco, Ricky Fowler, you wouldn't rule out Justin Thomas having a real good week and maybe just maybe come Sunday lifting that trophy Rory's press conference is always good value he said he talked about a range of things Tiger Woods undergoing <laughs> another gotta, back surgery gotta play this there was a little bit I felt of, of kind of arrogance tripping a little bit in this answer from Rory because I think it was the first question in actual fact Rory before we get to Abu Dhabi got a touch on Tiger news today that Tiger Woods has gone under the knife for a fifth time on his back reaction to that Rory and this is what he had to say I've known for a while um, yeah. He had it on the 23rd of December, um, obviously pretty close with him. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, in her, his words, it was a small procedure. So I don't think it's anything that obviously any time you're being cut into is, you know, obviously try to avoid that as much as you can. But, you know, he was back on his feet the next day and he was, you know, so it's I, I don't think we can read too much into it. It was just something that was, a you know, I think they were just trying to clean a couple little bits up. So. Um, obviously he won't be playing for the next couple of months, but you know, he should be back for the masters if not before that. So, um, yeah, I think he'll be just fine. Five surgeries on his back, including a spinal fusion. He'll want one tune up event at least before the masters. Dare I say it. Ceremonial. Well, well, you said that, but Rory came back with uh, a question similar was put to Rory and he said, well, listen, Four, he's had four back surgeries. Yeah, exactly. What's another? Yeah, I know. The What's the point? What's yeah. the point of even doubting the man uh, anymore? But listen, let's uh, let's hear now from Lucas Herbert. He is the 25-year-old Australian winner of last year's Amiga Dubai Desert Classic. Caught up with him. He's, he was actually ninth in the race to Dubai, um, and he elected to spend Christmas with his family in Australia instead of travelling. He just explained that. He'd have had to quarantine for a fortnight upon his return. He said he was going to be travelling all over the place this year. He made the tough decision that he would spend Christmas at home. He would not travel. And uh, as a result, I think he ended up in 14th because he just didn't play in either the Golf in Dubai Championship or the the DP World Tour Championship either. He's uh, reached a ranking of 70th in the world. He won the, the Desert Classic, finished fourth the Irish Open, seventh at the Scottish Open, got a best major finish of 31st at the US Open at Wing Foot. And speaking of that event, which was, of course, won by Bryson DeChambeau, Lucas actually admitted in this next clip that the Americans' quest for maximum distance has intrigued everyone on tour, and I mean everyone. I asked him how the off-season had treated him. Unfortunately, I worked on the Christmas body a little bit too much. <laughs> I think I, uh, the liquid diet was probably, probably took pre- um, preference more often than it should have, so... Um, yeah, I'm hoping to try and come out of these events and, and lose a bit of timber, if I'm honest. But um, went to a longer drive. So I think everyone kind of jumped on a bit of the Bryson DeChambeau phase there and, and at least tested the longer stuff. So, um, yeah, I've gone to that, which has picked up some, some distance, which is kind of nice. And, yeah, the practice rounds here, I've, I've definitely noticed um, playing the golf course, hitting some different lines and some different clubs into some greens that uh, I haven't in previous years. I think Bryson has become the first PGA Tour player to, to almost swing like a professional long driver, you know, like like one of those guys who takes the club way past parallel and it's basically just trying to hit it as hard as, as he can. And how intrigued have you guys been in, in, in all of that? It's obviously been a very well-documented experiment that he's been going on. And I know that distance is an important aspect of golf, but it seems like now more than ever, people are obsessed with, you know, carrying the ball three, 320 through the air. 
Yeah, it's a tricky one, and I think it's pretty multifaceted as to how you look at it. I mean, Bryson's obviously bulked up quite a lot, so in terms of physically being able to deal with the stress that the, the you know, I think he's swinging at like high 200s for the ball speed, um, being able to being able to deal with the stresses that puts on your body, I think he's made himself fairly equipped with being able to do that, um, obviously with bulking up. And then I think, I mean, when someone like him comes along and he's had success doing it, so someone like that comes along and, you know, it's a bit like I assume when Tiger came along, he changed the game in a lot of ways um, and made people rethink about, you know, how they looked at playing golf tournaments and, and all this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think you know, someone like that comes along, you definitely, you take an interest and you want to, you know, all of a sudden it sparks kind of some thoughts in your head as to, well, whether is what he's doing, is that going to be beneficial for everyone? Is that just for him? Is that actually not beneficial at all? Um, It at least sparks an interest. And I think you kind of have to go and check it out a bit. You can't really, I think you can't really just leave it alone and and not do it. If you've got any sort of curiosity, um, you've got to kind of go and try it out. So, so many ways to sort of think about it. And And I guess like in swinging, you know, I've probably changed my driver swing a little bit to try and deal with a longer shaft in the driver. And um, it's probably looking at that as well and how much stress that's putting on my body. Um, and then, you know, whether is that something we can manage and, and maybe I have a shorter career, but, you know, 20 extra yards off the tee might get me some better results. Or, you know, is it something that we maybe just put aside and, and play a 44-inch driver and um, potentially have a longer career? And, you, you know, it's... It's just a lot to juggle. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a lot of food for thought what he's, what he's thrown into the mix. And uh, it's good. It's, uh, it's kept us all on our toes. Interesting that he's really – his experiments are putting the cats amongst the pigeons is what they are. Um, obviously, winning a European Tour event was a huge achievement for Lucas. He did it the hard way in a sudden-death playoff against Christian Bezadenhout. And I asked him what factors, what magic in a bottle did he discover to land a first European Tour win? Physically, my game had been in a great spot for you know the best part of 18 months, but I – uh, I don't think mentally I was at the at the right stage to be able to go and win a tournament like I did. I think I definitely made some mental jumps that week, from especially from Abu Dhabi the week before. Um, I felt like I'd ha- I put a lot of pressure on myself and and was trying to win too hard. So I think just taking a lot of pressure off myself mentally that that following week, just setting some different goals that were away from trying to win the golf tournament, that definitely helped me. Um, and then I mean, you've always got to have good breaks when you. When you win a tournament, you, I look at Christian kind of had the, the tournament won there on 18 and, and just came up short with his approach shot and spins it back in the water and makes a six. You know, if he knows that he just has to make five to win that tournament, maybe he plays that hole a little bit differently. Obviously, I got very lucky with hitting it in the water and then getting taken back to the drop zone and, and hitting a great shot at that time. And yeah, I think everyone needs a little bit of luck to win. So yeah, you can't, I can't say it was, it was all just skill and I can't say it was all just luck. You know, it was just a good combination of everything that week where it all came together nicely for me. He seems like a well-grounded individual, does, does. Lucas. Just a, a regular guy who happens to be extremely good. A little bit like Daniel Ricciardo, the other Aussie. A little bit in the yeah. world of F1. No frills yeah. whatsoever. Lucas reflects on that downtime and he also admits that the absence of fans, and this ties in with another big news story, has put increased scrutiny on the conduct of the players and in mm. particular the language that they use out on the course. I actually didn't find it too frustrating. I mean, obviously I've got people around me, coaches and, and physios and, and whatnot, that I was, um, you know, essentially providing income for. And 
I think if the pandemic had hit four months earlier, I might have been in a lot more trouble than I was financially to help them out through that time. So to me, it, it like I felt incredibly lucky that it did hit when it did because it um, it gave me a chance, obviously, to be able to help those guys around me that you know really believed in me and and make sure they were they were safe through the pandemic. Um, firstly. To me, it just felt like golf was on pause for a little bit. It never felt like I lost form or I lost, you know, that confidence or that mojo for when the restart happened. It just felt like it was on pause for a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's a tricky one. I, 2020 was a great season for me. I played 12 events and had four top 10s. And like, that's, I mean, that's pretty good figures right there. So yeah. in one way, it's like, I'm super proud of what I did. But in one way, it's a little bit frustrating. It's like, I wonder if I had to play double the events, you know, would I have had double the top 10s and, and potentially won again? So there's two ways of looking at it. And, you know, it is what it is. Everyone had a bit of a, a year that was kind of a write-off and um, I got a lot out of it. So I, I can't be too upset with that. A lot of the players said it was weird coming back to no spectators. Did, did that affect you at all? In some ways. I mean, I think we played here in Abu Dhabi the week before I won and I would have been in definitely not one of the TV groups or one of the well-watched groups. So I think it was like going back at, going back three months to where no one was watching me anyway. Um, so it wasn't... I didn't, I didn't find it at the end of the world. I think it's... Um, it's, it gets a little bit weird when there's TV cameras sort of watching your group, but there's no one there physically watching you. Cause I think obviously the, the effects microphones have picked up probably some things that, uh, that shouldn't have been said in recent times on the, um, on the telecast. But it, I, I mean, I can see how easy it is for that to happen because when you're at home with your buddies, you might say that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, it flies because you're, um, you know, there's no one else around and you know, the people that are around you, but then, when there's kind of no one else around you on the course, just TV cameras, you, you're still in that bubble of it's like you're at home with your mates, but you just forget sometimes there's a TV camera there. And, um, you know, at times things come out that you probably wish they didn't. So, yeah, it was, it's, it's just a, it's a bit of a weird vibe. It's a weird dynamic as to how it all works. I think it'll be, it'll be kind of odd when we go back to having fans um, again. But, I, like, I'm really looking forward to it. I want to get the fans out here right now because um, I think it creates such a good atmosphere and, um you know, it's, it's what we play golf for, that buzz of having everyone else watching us play. Lucas Herbert there, a, a very Australian answer. Very, very um, much so, but yeah. I like him. Yeah, no, he's, he's extremely likeable. Really nice guy, really nice guy. And uh, let's finally hear this from him. He won that tournament, the Desert Classic. And I did say to him, when you achieve something like that, you know, you weren't expecting necessarily to win it that week. You were a bit of a shock winner. How do you reset? midway yeah. through a season and how do you kind of get you get your emotions back on an even keel and how did you therefore adjust your own expectations to that breakout victory you know in some ways you you actually want to ride the wave a little bit i mean winning a golf tournament gives you some incredible confidence so that you don't want to kind of park that too quickly um you want to keep you want to keep that flowing and and keep thinking about that when you're on the golf course the next week i think you know we celebrated pretty hard sunday night but then I kind of parked it for a little bit because I wanted to feel like I celebrated with all my friends and family back home. So, you know, I knew that was only two weeks away. So I, I kind of let myself park that for a couple of weeks. And then I knew there was going to be some serious celebrations when I did get home. I rode that wave of confidence through the first sort of part of the season there. I think I played another four events after after winning there in Dubai and felt like I used that confidence really well to play the way I did through those next few events. And it felt like a new, yeah, a new confidence came over me. You, you sort of looked at differently when you walk through the players lounge and in the locker room and, you know, you just earned that little bit more respect out of the players than you may maybe had beforehand. So in some ways you, you kind of wanted to park it on the side and, you know, think about it later when you get a chance away from all the golf to kind of, sit back and, and, you know, really take stock of what you've done, but also wanted to keep it right in the forefront of my mind that 
you know, I'd won a tournament and a very big tournament against some very good players. And, you know, I didn't want to forget that too quickly. You know, I'm going to be looking out for Lucas's name on that leaderboard. I'm going to be following his progress with interest. He's definitely one to watch. He is potentially a massive star of the game. Yeah. Only 25, already a winner. Hits it a mile, by the way. And he's got all the ingredients of, uh, as they all do. God, so many <laughs> exactly. great players. That's not exactly setting him apart. But <laughs> yeah, he's got a fearless approach to his golf. There's no doubt about it. Thank you for listening to the Extra Time Podcast. With myself, Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.